The 4th of July is still a community festival in Ohio, but I feel a local surge in colonialism. The chairs that used to come out the night of July 3rd now appear on the sidewalk in roped together clumps of two to six as early as the first week of June. I'm thinking next Memorial Day or maybe St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to stake out my domain of curb space with a sofa, side tables, a couple of tasteful lamps, and just hang out until the parade passes me by. Welcome back to the Townies Podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a Townie. I am a Townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same to go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 12 regrettably yours. Starting off this week's podcast with a bang is DDS, written and performed by Noah Lashley. Noah has felt like family much longer than the three years I have been married to his uncle. Hilariously self-deprecating, wildly uncomfortable and awkward around famous people, Noah is a generous and talented writer-performer, dedicated not only to his voice, but the voices of others. He's super cool. I am a generally clean person. I use non-scented hypoallergenic shampoo, conditioner, soap, and deodorant. I have the expensive and fluffy smooth toilet paper because it is both aesthetically and tactilely pleasing. (laughs) And though my mother doesn't believe me, I actually brush my teeth every day, morning and night. To be fair, when I was a young boy, I would lie to my German mother, telling her that I brushed my teeth so thoroughly, I brushed them away, therefore never needing to brush them ever again, ever, upon which she would call me a liar and send me back to the bathroom crying and wishing she would stop being German and just turn into a person. (laughs) My mother hardly has perfect teeth and has gone to reasonably great lengths to correct her teeth by having braces twice. She's also had 18 cavities and mostly just doesn't want me to make the mistakes of her youth. 
I, she, uh, she used to stick dental floss in my lunchbox in elementary school to remind me to floss after I eat. When I was in high school, she used to put post-it notes on the mirror and toilet that read uh, in the first person, did I forget to brush my teeth? As if I had asked myself the question. <laughs> My first semester in college, the first piece of mail that my German mother had sent me was a toothbrush with a handwritten note that said, a hangover is not an excuse. <laughs> I had become very self-conscious of my teeth, not because they were crooked or straight or fat or skinny. I had simply been the product of dental bullying. <laughs> if you practice good moral and dental hygiene, you're supposed to get your teeth cleaned about every six months. And since I had been gone in school uh, um, in Arkansas for a semester at this point and hadn't gotten my teeth cleaned for months before that, my mother decided it would be an appropriate and extra special Christmas present to get me an appointment to get my teeth cleaned. I was less than thrilled. Our society doesn't respond very well to dentists, calling them evil, sadists, or sociopaths. And I can't help feeling like those labels are justified when I walk through Dr. Burton DDS's office. I'm always greeted pleasantly by the woman at the front desk and think to myself naively, nothing is wrong with this particular establishment. <laughs> but um, I'm stupid and she hates me <laughs> because she lets me walk through those doors and into the office with the flickering fluorescent lights and the paintings of clowns and mossy linoleum and wild rabies infested deer running rampant. <laughs> Only, under, uh, only to end up under the supervision of Dr. Burton DDS, which is the scariest thing of all. But then, on this unreasonably winter morning, everything changed. I was escorted into Megan's little cubicle. Megan is the new dental hygienist at Dr. Burton DDS's office. Megan is honestly a shining ray of hope that shines like destiny through the black, miserable office making everything Shiny. <laughs> Megan had just gotten LASIK eye surgery when I met her, allowing her patients to get lost in the tropical white sand Atlantic Ocean that is her eyes. <laughs> allowing me to drown out Dr. Burton DDS telling a woman that he had mistakenly numbed her tongue permanently and then telling her that it was a joke. <laughs> oh, another joke from Dr. Burton DDS, rich with humor. <laughs> Megan is from Washington State and loves the cold and the rain, which is like so funny because I love the cold and the rain. <laughs> she went to college, which is so funny because I go to college. <laughs> Her father is a dentist, which is so funny because my father could have been a dentist had he not wanted to be like an Air Force pilot or an actor or a writer or a lawyer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She keeps her dental hygienist uh, cubicle nice and clean and organized, which are all things you look for in a dental hygienist, but like, it's so funny. I'm nice and clean and organized. Uh, my brother had gone to see Megan the day before I did because he's the bastard of the family and, and feels entitled to get to everything first. He turned 18 first. He got a car first. He got attractive first. He got into college first. Uh, he was born first. He just takes and takes and takes and never gives. <laughs> he reported back to me that the new dental hygienist is such a babe, Noah, such a babe. Like the patriarchal, rude, fast motherfucker he is. Of course, I didn't believe him because Dr. Burton DDS is evil and wants everyone to suffer by generally hiring dental hygienists with ironically bad breath. <laughs> But as part of my preparation for going to the dentist, 
I brush my teeth 10 minutes before I arrive so as to give off the illusion that my teeth are always squeaky clean and need not be cleaned for much longer, allowing me to escape faster. The first thing that Megan said to me when she put her hands in my mouth um, was that I had really nice teeth and that she could tell that I took really good care of them. All of my insecurities went out the bulletproof windows Dr. Burton DDS had installed for some reason. <laughs> Along with my mother's critiquing German uh, voice, reiterating that my teeth would never be good enough. <laughs> Megan was, was nice and was pretty and had nice breath. I had never seen someone who had the whole package before, but she, she has the, the whole package. Uh, I, had, I had asked her what she was doing that weekend, and she had informed me that she was, going to an apartment, uh, she was going apartment hunting in Santa Barbara because it was pretty up there. And I told her, how funny, I'm going apartment too, uh, hunting too, even though I don't live here or make money, but sort of just for fun. I'm, <laughs> I'm super fun. <laughs> Maybe I'll see you there. <laughs> Okay, she told me, it's a date, I said. Uh, uh, she laughed and I skipped away happily, finally succeeding at asking a girl out on a date for the very first time. Uh, my well-deserved skips were halted by Dr. Burton DDS standing at the end of the hallway in spandex short shorts, a skin-tight bicycle shirt, a shaped bicycle helmet, sunglasses, and bicycle gloves as if to show people how aerodynamic he was. <laughs> See, my parents, in a ploy to make more money to afford to keep our house, built a guest house that would be rented out to whomever decided to occupy it for however long. Uh, the tenant we have living there now, let's call him Theodore because I don't know his name, um, is a complete mystery to me except for the fact that he is old, wears spandex short shorts, and hates my friends for parking their cars in his designated parking spot. Our previous tenant uh, was a man named Richard, but called himself Ricardo, who was a brain surgeon turned self-help guru, who had an illustrious career of writing uh, books with awful titles, wearing an incredible amount of spandex short shorts, and hating my friends. But the tenant before Ricardo was Dr. Burton DDS. Because he is middle-aged, was kicked out of his house, and living in a guest house, he felt that that warranted him to start the awful spandex short short curse that plagues my guest house to this day. And let me tell you, his thighs were not up to the standards that thighs should be if they were to be constantly exposed like that. The bulging blue veins in his legs formed together like the paintings of death and sadness the devil himself had created. <laughs> if you had the unfortunate chance to be walking down the street as he's biking towards you, standing directly in front of him, as many victims did, my friends included, you would be exposed to the horror that was his sweaty genitals. So, on this afternoon, to avoid his genitals, I bolted to my car and, and drove home as fast as I could. Upon arriving home, I found my bastard brother sitting on the couch where I joined. It was surprising to see my brother at the house because he's often reluctant to spend more than one day at the house because he's always pretending like he has something like really exciting and important to do in Los Angeles. I asked him what he was doing home still and he told me that he was going to go help Megan look for apartments the next day. I gasped. Ma, that bastard had invited himself along and now I couldn't go because, let's be honest, if there was a fire and you could only save me or my brother, you'd save him. He's more charming than I am, like a bastard. He's tanner than I am, like a bastard. He graduated magna cum laude from UCLA, like a bastard. He takes better care of his teeth, like a bastard. 
he's also like a good person and I can't compete with that. <laughs> so I didn't go. My brother spent every day with Megan for 10 days and I asked my brother what he had done with Megan. He told me that he had taken her to a sushi restaurant and because he used to live in Santa Barbara, he knows all the best fucking sushi restaurants. <laughs> and Megan loves sushi, which is like so super funny because I love sushi. <laughs> I knew I had to get Megan to notice me away from my happy, handsome, well-adjusted bastard brother and choose me over him. I had no choice but to bite the bullet and go back to Dr. Burton DDS's office to see Megan. Instead of biting a bullet, I decided to stick a handful of pebbles in my mouth and bite down on them, breaking, with agonizing pain, the back tooth on my right side. My German mother was furious with me. How could you do this to us? <laughs> She screamed in a fit of German rage, tearfully sending me to the dentist that afternoon. I went into Dr. Burton DDS's office with an orchid to substantiate my feelings for Megan. I went into the office but was instead placed under the care of Dr. Burton DDS and before I could run away, he stabbed a needle in my mouth, numbing me up. Now, how'd you break this tooth? I bit down on a rock. That's an odd thing for a young lad to do, he said. <laughs> um, excuse me, I said. I'm technically a man, and I don't appreciate you undermining my position in society by labeling me a young lad when I am legally a man, you insensitive bigot. <laughs> he was taken aback. I was too, for that matter. This was out of character for me. I'm a very non-confrontational and generally passive-aggressive person. He knew this, so he told me that he wanted to try something. He brought this portable x-ray down to my cheek and shot x-ray beams through my face, and moments later, images appeared on the screen. He nodded and made noises as if to show me he understood the black and white images. He turned to me and said, Noah, oh my god, I think you have a brain tumor. It appears that way, I'm really sorry. He then proceeded to tell me why he thought that, but I wasn't listening. A tumor. I felt like the earth is, was opening beneath me and swallowing me whole. I couldn't breathe. I'm dying. I looked at Dr. Burton DDS with tear-filled eyes as he cracked a smile and started laughing hysterically. <laughs> Got you! I'm just kidding. I thought that a little levity would help the situation. It's just a cracked tooth. I started to cry. Are you kidding me? I screamed through sobs. Levity? What the fuck is that? I do not appreciate your humor, and perhaps, perhaps, your office of dentistry is not the best place for you to practice your comedy routine. <laughs> You're not Patch Adams. You're not aerodynamic. You're a dummy. I was so enraged. I almost threw the orchid on the ground, but then I stopped. And I looked at the orchid and remembered why I had come to this dank cave of sorrow in the first place. <laughs> Megan. I picked up the orchid and walked over to Megan and handed it to her. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Noah. I love orchids, which is so funny. <laughs> Because I love orchids, too. 
I told her I, uh, that I uh, that I thought I, that I thought she was pretty and and smart and that uh, and she had nice breath and that she was the whole package and that we have so much in common that I, I that I don't want to be without her that that I love her that I really love her. She set down the orchid and walked over to me and set her hand on my shoulder. What was she doing? Was she going in for a kiss? <laughs> Our first kiss? <laughs> Is this what love feels like? Like a warm hand on your shoulder? <laughs> Noah, you're, you're sweet, but you're a little young for me, don't you think? <laughs> what? <laughs> I had never even considered our age to be a problem. I mean, granted, I was 19 and she was 28. <laughs> Maybe she's an ageist, which is super funny because I'm an ageist. <laughs> I'm sorry, she said. It looks like your brother and I are dating now, and it's actually going really well. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. I told her that it was fine and that she and my bastard brother were both very lucky. I walked out of the dentist's office with my head held at a reasonable level after having successfully confessed my love for someone for the first time and being rejected for the first time. An accomplishment, nonetheless. <laughs> it's now two and a half years later, and my bastard brother called a special event family dinner because apparently he has the power to do that. Uh, this being just a couple of days after my uncle married my now aunt, Kim Maxwell, of Kim Maxwell Studio. Uh, my, bro uh, my brother and Megan had decided to tell the whole family that Megan had just accepted his proposal and that they are, too, planning on getting married next June because June is Megan's favorite summer month, which is so funny because June is my favorite summer month. So... I guess it's a happy ending. My brother is engaged to a woman I'm honestly thrilled to call my sister-in-law. Dr. Burton DDS is no longer my dentist, and I haven't had a cavity in a year and a half, making my German mother very proud. We have all happily moved on. I was just at this awesome party in Austria, um, and I was explaining to these Austrians about how my brother and I met his fiance at the dentist's office and how I goofed up my teeth in the process, when this guy, Tony from Tennessee, came up to me and said, hey, for the record, you have great teeth. It looks like you take really good care of them. He walked away and I knew I was in love. Thank you, Noah Lashley. Next up, Don't Bug Me, written and performed by Morgan Flannery. Truly one of the most and least lucky humans I have ever met. Morgan swings back and forth between getting offered her dream job and getting thrown up on by Gary the female pug. Regardless of her daily fortune, Morgan embraces it all with grace, writes hysterical pieces about every minute, and is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Maybe the girl at the box office will recognize my name. And maybe she'll think it's really cool that I'm here. And um, maybe she'll ask me to hang out with her and her friends after the show, where we'll have heaps and bunches and bundles and oodles of fun. And they'll be interested in my writing process. And they'll ask me for advice. And I'll be able to give it to them, because it's my second year of college. And I've really grown a lot since high school. <laughs> 
I have matured. <laughs> this is Yes We Can's musical adaptation of an original play, my play, my first ever play of Shrek One and a Half. <laughs> I wrote it when I was in fourth grade, but it was wrong for its time then with the opening night being the same day as the world premiere of Shrek 2. But now, <laughs> 10 years later, the people are ready for this story. <laughs> they want the truth. They want to know, who is Shrek really? <laughs> <clears throat> I think this is a really important story to tell, especially for children. <laughs> to know there are others out there like them and that it's okay to be different and have absolutely no friends in the whole world <laughs> other than a donkey. <sighs> I'm getting cozy in my squeaky blue velvet theater seat. The ancient black curtains hang low and heavy over the stage, and a few of the kids pull it back from the center to peek out at the audience. The dust that had been clinging onto the curtains fills the room and is illuminated in streams of green light pointed at the children's faces, and they are happy. As, a, as the sneaky little laughter reverberates through the small space, I'm hit by a swell of the scent. It is the scent of joy and sadness and comfort and memories all wrapped up in a blanket for me, and it's warm. I close my eyes to enjoy this moment when the woman in front of me taps me on the knee and proudly says, my son is the ogre. Who are you here for? No one. I came here for myself. <laughs> A look of concern washes over her face. I open my mouth to explain to her that I'm the writer of this play, but my therapist has me trying this new thing where I don't justify myself or my actions to people in order to make them feel comfortable, so I say nothing. So I'm sitting there, and I'm basking in my green light when I hear this weird chirping sound. It's not really a chirp, though. It's kind of a weird hum chirp noise I've never heard, so I open my eyes and I see it. I see the thing. This little dime-sized pale green thing with brown wings and little antennas that stretch out to be twice the size of its actual body, and a mouth that's somehow gaping open and wide, and it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And then our eyes meet. <laughs> and I feel absolutely repulsed. <laughs> this thing, this thing is not a thing. It is an alien and it is staring into my soul and penetrating it and ripping me apart. And I can't break away from its gaze because its eyes are so dark. I can't think. My heart is racing and I'm overcome with the feeling of wanting to kill it. <laughs> I don't really believe in murder. <laughs> But this right here, right now, in this particular moment, this is necessary. And then I realized that this creature is staring at me from the shoulder of the ogre's mother. 
It's just resting there, making itself at home, and she hasn't noticed. This poor, poor woman. She's so excited to see her son perform, but she's a victim. And the worst part is she doesn't even know it. She has absolutely no idea that she's being humiliated. The Thing and I are staring each other down when the lights dim and I panic because the show is starting and it's still on her and she needs to know, but now her son is singing the opening song and she's recording it and she needs to know that this creature is... <gasps> it's on her head. <gasps> oh shit, it's on her head and she looks so stupid. <laughs> and she doesn't even know it. But I do and I can save her. I take my program and I fold it up to make a little tunnel trap for it and I move in slowly to scoop it off her head slow and steady so as not to disturb the woman and I'm inching toward it closer and closer and slowly and even closer now and I'm almost there when the thing gives me a look <laughs> Have you ever stared death in the eyes? <laughs> I'm stunned by this feeling. And then the thing opens its fat mouth to form an enormous pink pit of eternal doom and lets out a supersonic sound that is pitched so high that I can feel my eardrums for the first time. And I scream and I take my weapon and I start beating the thing. And I'm beating it and beating it and it won't die. The damn thing won't die. It doesn't even blink or move or react or anything. It's impenetrable. I'm suddenly stopped by very worried looking older gentleman with a beard as long as my hair and I immediately recognize him as Larry, the wise old man who wanders the streets of this town in silence. <laughs> no! woman, Larry. I need to help her because there's the thing, Larry. Didn't you see it? It was on her and she didn't deserve this. No one deserves this. Larry just looks at me and I look around and realize everyone is looking back at me. <laughs> the actors have stopped acting, the music has stopped playing, and silence has never been louder. I don't get it. How do they not understand that I was just trying to save her? She came to see her son perform on stage, and then this monster came along to ruin it. Larry releases me, and the woman looks at me with utter disgust. What is wrong with you? Me? What's wrong with me? How about you? All of you! I'm not the crazy one here. I'm the only one that tried. The rest of you saw it. I know you did. You had to. It was giant and green and horrible, and you weren't going to do or say anything about it for the sake of being polite, because being polite is so much more important than telling the truth. This is what's wrong with the world. We walk around in our little bubbles, not interacting with anyone we don't know, because God forbid we have a conversation with a stranger that's more than, I like your sandals, in the line for the bathroom. 
And when someone needs help, we look away and hope it leaves? Well, I don't need this! Or you! Or anyone! I would so much rather be at home, alone, with my walls, and my tea, and just me, because I love myself and I'm happy! <laughs> I stumble through the string of legs toward the exit, my green light blinding me on my way. When I stop, and I turn back to the woman. Um, can I have my program back? You just heard from Morgan Flannery. Here from the album I've Got Plans, it's John Slade with Talk to Gilda. After midnight And I'm lonely I'm prowling like a tunnel Gilda's light is on I say hey Gilda's okay I talk to Gilda I bet she's often watching TV I wonder if I discover She's with a lover Oh oh that would be just Terrible to me but
To learn more about the artists and music featured on the Townies Podcast, please visit thetowniespodcast.org. Nightmares, written and performed by Kyla Geronimo. Soft-spoken, delightful, and witty, Kyla is known in our house as Casper the Friendly Ghost, often magically appearing in a room with a huge smile on her face, scaring the bejesus out of all of us. She is a rising high school senior. Love her. For some reason, almost every single time that I sleep somewhere new, I wake up to see a robot opening the door. (laughs) A robot that is made with joints of neon pink, blue, and green animated electrical wires that crackle and spark continuously. The robot has this creepy smile on its face, so, as one would do, I try to hide myself underneath the blankets and attempt to sleep so that this terrible, frightening (laughs) robot will just disappear. (laughs) Usually, I will open my eyes to look over the blankets, and there, standing next to me, is the robot, with its electrical wires heating up my face so that I can't breathe, stealing my oxygen in the same way that a fireplace does. And as the robot comes closer, I close my eyes and become worried for my human life that is only being protected by three layers of inadequate bedding. (laughs) the bottom sheet, the top sheet, and then the comforter. Finally, when my eyes are opened for what seems like their final time, the shiny silver robot just dissipates into the surrounding air as it reaches towards me. I hate this thing because it is a nightmare, but while I am awake, I know that I am awake when it happens. It is not a dream. This is why I can't stay at your house. It's because of the robot. (laughs) And that was Kyla Geronimo. Closing this week's episode, Green Light That Wasn't, written and performed by Robert McNeil. A recently retired certified accountant with a passion for freeform dancing, theater, and the arts. Robert loves spending time with his daughter and animals of any kind. I have been lucky enough to work alongside him for 20 years. He's the best. Driving. Approaching a photo enforced traffic signal. (laughs) All senses on high alert. Focused on the green light. Ready to brake if necessary. Just as the front wheels break into the crosswalk, the light turns yellow, and I am engulfed in white light flashes from the cameras. I'm in total confusion, overwhelmed with fear that the cops are watching my every move. This must be a mistake. I'm traveling 40 miles an hour. I'm well into the crosswalk. I could not possibly stop in time. I will see that I could not have stopped. Summons arrives in the mail. I am incredulous. I drive to the police station to review the evidence, reigniting my fear of the police. 
I am shown a video of a car clearly driving through a red light. I respond, that can't possibly be my car. The light was green until I got to the crosswalk. I'm directed to a number on the screen and told it was the number of seconds the light was red before my car went through the light. The number is 43. 43 seconds. The light was red 43 seconds before I drove through it. I, I cannot reconcile that fact with my experience at the signal. I'm shaken badly and I leave the police station in shambles. I drive to the signal, park my car, and observe several cycles over and over and over. And finally, I get it. I had been focused on a green light that was for the right turn lane and completely ignored several other red lights. <laughs> my state of mind, my paranoia about being caught by the police had caused me to be myopic and to record in my memory a narrow view of the big picture. A very narrow view of a very big picture. We were listening to Robert McNeil. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. And that was Morgan Fun. That was Ken interrupting the best take I ever did. Damn it, Ken. The irony was that I was going to say, we need a, how about an and that was? <laughs> oh, the irony. Ew. Okay, why do I always lean English? All right, here we go.